footballers' lives. Life After Football is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Presented and produced by Richard Lenton. Hello and welcome to a new season of Footballers' Lives. Thanks for the feedback from Season 1, which featured the likes of Andy Cole, Danny Murphy, Michael Thomas, Brian Dean, Emmanuel Petit and plenty of others. Those episodes focused predominantly on their playing careers, but didn't always spend much time looking into how those players transitioned away from the pitch. Some of you have asked for more on what former players are doing now, so this season, as well as interesting on-the-field stories, I'll also be chatting to players who've moved on to interesting careers, either within football or in a completely different field. Now, it's difficult to imagine more contrasting careers than professional footballer and Christian minister, but that's exactly the transition former Newcastle and Chelsea midfielder Gavin Peacock embarked upon in 2008, despite having already landed a lucrative BBC punditry gig. He now preaches out in Canada, where he's been living with his family for the past dozen years. This is Footballers' Lives, Life After Football, with Gavin Peacock. Gavin, 2020, I suppose, has been collectively the most challenging in our lifetime. What's it been like out in Canada, where you've been living now over this past year? Yeah, it's, it's been tough, as it has been everywhere. I would say in Western Canada, where I, I live in Alberta, which is kind of one province east of, uh, of, of the most Western province, which is British Columbia, where Vancouver is, you go one province in, uh, and it's uh, Alberta, Calgary. We've got a lot less people than over in the UK or, or, or some of the European countries or the United States. So we've got a lot less cases, it's more spread out. So whilst all the restrictions have still been in place, they're seemingly, it seems to have been a bit less intense here. Um, but, you know, I, I travel a lot and, and speak in different places. All of that has been uh, cancelled and literally, I came, I was back in the UK in um, February, uh, end of February, March time, and uh, I was doing some speaking. I even went to a couple of matches. I went to a QPR match and a Charlton athletic match. And, and then I went to see my son. Uh, my son's a professional Muay Thai fighter. I went to see him fight in Dublin. Mm. And it was starting to break across Europe, the, the COVID-19 was starting to break. And we're hearing more and more of it. And literally, I was coming back from uh, Dublin like he fought at the weekend. I was coming back on the, on the Monday and I got back here in Calgary within a day. Uh, Ireland was shut down and everything then shut down over here in Calgary. It's like it, it just spread across super quick. Yeah. Um, so, and ever since then, you know, I've been, been here in, in Calgary and getting by as, as best you can. And uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's been such unprecedented times. I mean, there's a, you can look back in history and always see deep times of suffering for people around the world and there's been wars and all of this. Um, but this is, is coming in such a different format because mm. of the invisible nature, the, the unpredictable nature of, of the virus and, and how many it's affected. So, um, yeah, um, difficult days, but I'm sure we'll, we'll get through together. Absolutely. I'm always the eternal optimist. And I say that I, I do a lot of university lecturing now and, you know, I tell my students, even though the jobs market at the moment is really, really tough, you know, no one's hiring, things will get better. Mm -hmm. You've got to stay positive and just put your building blocks in place to make you 
themselves as enjoy as employable as possible but i'm looking forward to talking to you a little bit later about canada a country that's always fascinated me and also jake i've been watching some of his fights on youtube but first of all i was going to take you back to 1987 now i've spoken to a lot of players about the mentors they had in their lives and careers but moving from the top flight in queen's park rangers to your dad keith's team gillingham in the third mm. division at the age of 19 was a really big call. So what was the thinking behind that? Because playing for your old man puts enormous pressure on a young lad trying to make his way in the game. Yes, it does. And I was brought up in a footballing family because my dad was a professional for 17 years with Charlton Athletic and then went into the management. And you're right, Gillingham was, uh, he did very well with, with Gillingham back in the days. He had Steve Bruce and Tony Cascarino. Um, and I made my own way in, at QPR, broken into the first team at just, just turned uh, 19. And Jim Smith was the manager uh, then. And um, I was in and out the first team as a youngster in those days. I only had two subs. Uh, so, you know, it was, uh, it was a fight to get on the bench. And I guess I was a little bit impatient as well in, in those days, even though I had, was a bright young prospect and I was offered a new contract. But I wanted to play every week and I wanted to play in the centre of midfield. QPR were, were playing me out wide in midfield. I was quite small and I never grew to be a giant. But, you know, I, I was still reaching my physical uh, capacity, if you like. And, um, and my dad was at Gillingham. I was living home at home at the time. So I would travel into West London for training in the morning. He'd travel out, out, to, uh, out to Gillingham in Kent. And... We're sitting there at breakfast one morning and he's sort of looking thoughtful and he looked across at me, he said, um, so I need a, a midfielder, I've got some injury problems. He says, how, how do you fancy coming on loan for a month? And uh, I just looked up and eating my wheat a bit and I said, yeah, I fancy it, Dad. He said, I'll ring Jim Smith. So he was friends with Jim Smith from the Jim Smith's Oxford days when they played Gillingham. And, and he, he said, I'll ring Jim Smith and see what, what happens. And uh, and so it worked out that I went for a month on loan. And my dad pulled me, he said, you know, I will be harder on you, actually, than on the other players, mm -hmm. in a way. I have to be seen. I cannot be seen to give you any uh, favouritism. I won't overpraise you. But, you know, we can have a chat when we get home and I'll tell you where it's at. Um, he said, I'll give you two uh, bad games. He said, you'll be out of the team. So I had to perform uh, high. And um, so it takes wisdom, I think, from the... The father, if they're the manager, and the son, if they're the player, uh, to, to handle it with the other players. I think the son has to be one of the best players as well. That's helpful. And so I went in there and, um, and I did okay. And it turned into a permanent move for me. And, uh, and it was a good move because in 18 months at Gillingham, I played 80 first-team games and, and came through that period a stronger, more established, all-round midfield player. And, it, you know, a short time I played for my dad, I, I loved it. Well, I used to go and watch Doncaster Rovers and Scunthorpe United in the lower leagues at around about that time. It was no place for shrinking violets for a teenage lad. You must have had to grow up pretty quickly. I, I did. And, you know, I mean, I wasn't renowned for being a, a tackler or anything like that. But, you know, I, I could put my foot in, I could get up and down the field. But I would be a creative player in, and the pitches could get heavy, right? In those days, they were very heavy in the winter. Um, but my dad would mark my card on, a, you know, every team we played. There used to be a hard man in midfield that didn't mess about. And uh, he'd say, watch for this guy. Watch, you know, you have to be on your, on your game, one, two touch. And then you'll overcome them with your sort of skill. And uh, so, yeah, you're right. It helped me grow up because it was different from playing 
in the football combination, the reserve team mm. uh, at QPR. Um, uh, and, and it made me, yeah, made me a man, in, in, you know, and I was only 19. And, um, well, there was very little protection from referees, was there? less protection from referees I got a few whacks and and had to get up and carry on and so as I say even that aspect like you say even that physical aspect uh, strengthened me up as a, as a midfield player to hold my own and I as I say 18 months later I was I was a different prospect as a player yeah and what's the dynamic like at a football club when your dad has been sacked which happened very soon after you joined Gillingham yeah that was that was tough um we were doing okay in the in the division, and in, earlier that season, I mean, he he, I think Gillingham beat Chesterfield ten nil in a record uh, yes. win, and then eight one against South South End, and third round of the FA Cup, and still doing all right. But then we had a few injuries and a few bad results. One at Aldershot was a bad six one or six nil, and um, he called. We drove back from the game together, and my dad was really. My dad's usually upbeat and very philosophical, but he was really down. And then the next morning, he called the team in for training and he called me into his office, I want to see you. And uh, he said, uh, the board have sacked me. He said, I'm about to tell the players, but I'm, I wanted to tell you first. And so I had to go and then sit with the other lads uh, while my dad told them. And he was a hugely popular manager. Mm. Um, you know, the, some of the players were in tears. He'd done well for them. He played good football. Um, and it was an it was an unjust sacking, and the majority of fans and players said the same thing. But then I had a decision to make. You know, I the board had treated my dad unjustly. The assistant manager Paul Taylor took over, and Paul was a family friend. and And Paul pulled me in and said, um, "You know, I'd understand if you wanted to go, Gavin." And I thought about it and thought, "Well, I've come here to do a job and to achieve, like, to come down a couple of divisions to bounce back up as a more established player." I'm going to stay. I'll prove the board wrong and, you know, do my best for Gillingham and see what happens. And so uh, in difficult times, I did stay on. And though it didn't go well for Gillingham, it, it went personally quite well for me. Yeah, indeed. And it earned you a move, didn't it? Harry Redknapp came in and took you to Bournemouth. Was he the same yeah. kind of character in 1989 as we see now on reality shows and football punditry <laughs> circles? Yeah, well, Harry, that was, it was probably, you know, he was a lot younger guy then, but... It was funny because I'd been making a bit of a name of myself in the lower divisions and, and clubs were looking and, you know, Brian Clough was looking and uh, other t clubs were looking at me. But Harry, you know, in the old second division, they were playing good football and he came in with a club record for both clubs, I think it was, 250 grand. And my dad advised me, go to Bournemouth, mainly because of Harry, because he knew Harry was good manager. And... Um, and yeah, he was larger than life character. Uh, what I liked about Harry was that he knew a player and he, and he would, he would tr always try and get the best out of you to, and he wanted to play good football. He wanted to be pure in his football. And the other thing about him is you could, he'd have a row with you, um, but he'd get, once it was done, it was done, you know, and he would move on uh, with you. And uh, I liked that about him. I felt him... Harry be pretty open with with me as well with the players, and he was very popular amongst the the players down there. And of course, when I was there, after our first season, he had the horrific uh, car crash yeah. in uh, Italia '90, and he nearly died. And, and his friend brought, did die, didn't he? And Brian Tyler died. So 
we'd got relegated in that first season. Leeds was our last game of the season. We got relegated. Um, I mean, there was players on the team, the Bournemouth, Luther Blissett, Paul Miller from the Ex-Spurs mm-hmm. player. And we got relegated. And we're all really devastated going into that summer. And of course, a few weeks later, our manager was fighting for his life. And it, it just brought a sense of perspective to the whole mm. thing. Okay, relegation's bad, but our manager could die. And of course, Harry came back and, um, you know, he, he went on to do great things in, in the game. Yeah, yeah. But for you at that stage, I think you'd also suffered a relegation with Gillingham. So for a young lad... Did two massive disappointments like that knock your confidence and self-belief or could you separate yourself as an individual from the team's plight? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it was a, d- a double blow. I mean, you're younger, you're a bit more resilient, I would say, in some ways, although you haven't got the experience of the older player. Um, I, I had an ambition to, to, to get back to the top flight, to come down a div- division or two, to come back up. And, of course, I thought I was going back up with... With, um, with Bournemouth and of course it get knocked back again so and I just got married uh, so as soon as I got my move to Bournemouth I got married so I was in the first year of marriage so all of that was new and we just got settled down in Bournemouth and so it was tough but but then I was looking and thinking okay well I'll just you know I, want, I went on the transfer list um, which probably wasn't the best timing in you know I should have waited a little bit longer um, mm before I did that, but I was 100% while I played for Bournemouth. And, um, and I was ambitious and, and impatient to get back up to the top level. Mm. And, um, and so this next season started, I was playing well. Jamie Redknapp, Harry's son was in midfield with me then. He was, he was that good, he was in the team at 16. Mm. And uh, one day after training, Harry pulled me. I see he was on his phone. He's often on his phone when during training session, buying a player or doing a deal or something. And he called me over. He said, Gavin, Newcastle United have come in for you. And uh, I knew then that was my big move to this sleeping giant up north. Went home to my wife. We just got our nice little house on the south coast. All nice. I said, Amanda, I said, uh, Newcastle United come in for me. I said, and we got to go. And she just burst into tears and she said, where's Newcastle? I said, it's up north and it's cold. I said, but it's a big club and it's a great chance. And then in, in 1990, we, we went to, to Newcastle. Your granddad Tom was a South Shields lad, wasn't he? Who bled brown ale. So it must have been an emotional move. It was. Um, um, you know, even though we lived down south and my granddad had come down after the war, my dad served in the and my granddad served in the Royal Navy in, the, in World War Two, but come down looking for work uh, down south after the war. We all grew up down south, but, but all the family was in the northeast, the Peacock family. And um, first kit was a Newcastle kit. <laughs> my dad played for Charlton. Um, and yeah, the day I signed for, for Newcastle, I mean, my dad was proud, but I don't think there was anyone prouder than my, my granddad. And he said to, to me on that day, he said, uh, Sam, he said, if you, if you sweat blood for their team, he said, those fans will forgive you many mistakes, he said, because if they could pull on that shirt, they would die to play for them. So I always remembered that. And from the first, my debut, I gave it everything, got up off to a decent start on the field personally and had a great relationship with the fans. I think I felt at home in a strange way because it was home from home yeah. for me. Uh, I had cousins and aunts and uncles up there. But... Um, it was, a, it was a tremendous uh, time for me, even though there were some tough times at the beginning. 
uh, but it ended on a, on a great high with yeah. Kevin King. Yeah, yeah, and you did have that bond straight away with the fans, that Leicester yeah. away game being your first match. Do you think footballers, football has lost that touch with the fans to a degree? And not just, you know, because they've not been allowed in grounds for so long. Do you think there has been a bit of distance put in there? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And it, probably a, a few different factors. And obviously, I don't forget, I've been away for a little bit, but I do come back. I'm back, you know, twice a year and I'm in touch with different players. My father's still involved at Charlton Athletic. And so I think that there is a difference. Whereas, you know, when we were, so when I was playing, the fans would come, they'd be standing on the touchline watching you train. They'd be going getting the balls for you if you were, shoot, you know, in shooting practice and you'd walk off afterwards with them. So uh, there was that aspect of, you, you knew fans by name, you'd chat with them, they'd be around. They were allowed into the training grounds much more than they are now. Mm. Um, secondly, I think uh, the, the, the money aspect has just gone through the roof so that now it's become almost unrelatable to the planes and the levels of life that um, footballers, I'm talking about footballers in, in the championship and, you know, some of the, what they're getting paid in, you know, in, in League One is still phenomenal when I hear some of the wages uh, that players are getting that are just nowhere near uh, what we were getting. Um, to give you an example, when I was at Chelsea, Dennis Wise and I would go and fight with Ken Bates for an extra £50 on our win bonus at the end of the season. It was like that. So, um, so there's the money aspect as well. And then I think the, the final thing would be it's much more multicultural with lots of um, overseas players coming and going. That, and it's not their fault. I mean, they've added to the Premiership in so many ways. Um, but they don't have that sense of connectedness and the history of the clubs that they go to. Uh, and, and so there's that, I think, that has played into it. All uh, things... And then one other th thing I would say is connected to the money is it's become very expensive, especially at Premier League games, for, for, the, for the working class dad with two kids that wants to go to a game. It's, it's fortunes for them and it does make it very difficult to get in the stadium and yeah. be up close and personal. So a few factors. Yeah. Uh, I played in a good era. Uh, I, I, I love the era I played in. Definitely. It was halcyon days for the Premier League. For me, the mid-90s to the mid-noughties mm. was, a, was a very special time. Um, going back to Newcastle, I spoke to one of your old teammates, Andy Cole, and he said he really struggled with the golfish bowl nature of playing for Newcastle, that one club city. But with you and your kind of Newcastle heritage, if you like, were you able to take it in your stride a lot more? Or were there still moments where you felt, crikey, this is getting a little bit uncomfortable? I think I was, I was okay with it. I was prepared for it. Um, maybe different to, to Andy. So I had family there already. Andy's come. He's a young guy. He was shy. Um, it took him a few games to get going. Of course, then when he, he did take off, they were the entertainers, so it went really big for them. Um, but uh, we, we also lived, my wife and I chose to live in Durham City. Different vibe, University City, you know, it looks like a step back in time with the cobble streets and what have you. So that gave us a little bit of a break from it. Um, and uh, so those, and I was a married man, and so I think, but I, I can definitely see how because they're so passionate the fans you can't walk down the street you know i remember going to the uh, to the movies with my wife and we've we're in newcastle we've gone in and we're paying for our tickets all of a sudden i've heard this 
singing and chanting. A bunch of Newcastle fans have seen us walk in, recognize me, and they're standing outside the glass doors, about 20 of them chanting my name and clapping until I came out and said hello to them. I mean, you never have got that in, in, in London, uh, but you're just so passionate. So it can be very intense. And if it's going badly, it, it's obviously, uh, it's, it's double hard. I was going to say, if you'd have been struggling on the pitch and having things thrown at you and choice uh, yeah. language being sent in your direction, it would have been, uh, would have been even worse. Now, you've definitely been in North America for a period of time because you did say you went to the movies there, Gavin, just to pick you up. I was trying to that. translate <laughs> to the pictures, yeah. Um, what about the managers there? What are your memories of Jim Smith who took you to Newcastle? I love Jim. I mean, I was scared of Jim when I was a kid at, at QPR because I remember my dad said to me, he's got this manager coming from Oxford. So he's, he's a good football man, but he can shout and scream a bit. So, you know, just be prepared. But he knows his football and he's a good guy. And uh, I was a little bit nervous of Jim uh, at QPR, but he gave me my first team debut. He obviously, you know, rated me enough to do that. And, and then he kept an eye on me for a couple of years and he bought me at Newcastle. So, uh, and for Jim... I would just say, great football man, knew the game, could watch a player and make decisions on players. Like, he would have a team in his mind and then he'd see training on a Friday and he'd go, Peacock looks sharp. I, I was on the bench, but I'm going to put him in on, on the Saturday. And he could do those little gambles and he just had an eye like that. And very well respected, uh, more so than Harry in, t in, in the sense of how he could have a blast a bust up with you. Um, he was more volatile than Harry, but shake hands and it's all finished afterwards. So I, I, I liked Jim very, very much and I will always be uh, grateful. I mean, he's, he's dead now and I'll always be grateful for what Jim Smith did for me as a player uh, uh, and as a footballer. And I respected him greatly. He was called the Bald Eagle, uh, but he was also Gentleman Jim in my book. Yeah, you mentioned Harry Redknapp as well. Those two worked together. I think it was at Portsmouth. That would have been a, an interesting dressing room. But the next, the next cab off the managerial rank, Ozzy Ardiles, what a footballer. But from a managerial point of view, was he yeah. as tactically naive as it's portrayed? Or should football be treated as a form of entertainment rather than the serious business it always seems to be now? Yeah, well, it needs to be. It is serious business, but... It, You've got, to, you've got to go, in my book, I mean, there's different, there's different styles and different ways that managers play. Um, but there's a way that Newcastle fans want the game played. And it's, it's to entertain. It's to play pure football. And so, Ozzy Kane, he had done well at Swindon. And um, he he'd introduced this diamond system uh, with wingbacks. And uh, he pulled me after first day of training and he said you you're like a he said you're like a diamond he said a rough diamond as a place so i just need to polish a few edges he said i'm going to play you at the head of the diamond in my in my system the the, the thing with our team under aussie is we had a lot of youngsters that he gave free reign to um i was kind of 23 so i'm still young but we had the likes of Lee Clark and Steve Howie and Steve Watson and Alan Thompson and Robbie Elliott. Mm. These are all players that had significantly good careers, but were only, only kids then. Mm. And he was playing them all. And when we had a, one or two older heads, John Burridge was a goalkeeper, Mickey Quinn, striker, Kevin Brock, but not a lot of experience. So we were quite entertaining going forward. 
but defensively we were unsound. So we were leaking too many goals and therefore we were losing too many games. And in the end, it, it became untenable for, for Aussie. And, but even, I think, even uh, the, the board, when they sacked Aussie, because he was so likeable, there was a tear in their eye. I mean, they were, you know, I remember Lee Clark being in tears when Aussie got sacked, you know. Uh, he was very well liked. And I think, all right, he didn't, he didn't have the players to do what he wanted to do with the system that he had. Um, a different set of players, maybe different for Aussie. Mm. But uh, what he did do is he, he gave players like me and, and those other ones that I've, I've, uh, I've named a real platform uh, mm. and an experience. So what he did was really kind of uh, undervalued by, by many people. Yeah. Um, but of course, the, it, it was Kevin Keegan, Special K, that came along and, and set it alight. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you with the Aussie Ideals. He did bring a lots of young players through who were then bubbling under the surface when mm -hmm. Kevin joined. But can you give us an indication of the state Newcastle were in on and off the pitch when the great Messiah returned? I think it was February 1992. And I think you were struggling big time, weren't you, in the championship? Yeah, yeah. We, we, were, uh, we were in a relegation battle. Um, it was going to go to the end. Uh, financially, it was unsettled behind the scenes as well. We knew some of it as players. We obviously didn't know, know all the ins and outs. Uh, Ozzy was sacked. I'm driving home over the Tyne Bridge, listening to the radio, and I hear we've uh, we've got Kevin Keegan. And it was, uh, I mean, I had pictures of Kevin Keegan on my bedroom wall as a kid. He was a he was a hero. And uh, and his first training session at the old training ground at Benwell. He, he got the lads together and he's, a, he's, a, he's shorter than me, Kevin, but massive presence, you know, when he was in a room, you know, you, you knew it. And a great leader of men. And he just got the guys together. He said, listen, any of you wants to leave this club, you come and see me and I will make it happen. But if you want to stay, he said, we will survive this season and then watch us take off. And so then for the next what three months it was up and down the black and white roller coaster like we'd win a game like his first game in charge at, against Bristol City at St James's they locked 5,000 out there were that many people that come see Kevin but we, we won that game and then and then we'd lose a game and then we'd be at winning and, and then we'd lose another and we're going to the wire all the way at one point Kevin left because he had a bit of an argument with John Hall and the, some promised uh, money didn't come through or whatever it was and um and we thought, oh, Kevin's left. And then he came back and it was sorted out. And, uh, uh, but I loved Kevin. I mean, if there's a play, uh, to give you an example, man management was brilliant. That was his key, motivating players. And his first game, I mentioned it, Bristol City at St. James's Park. He's going around the dressing room and he's talking to the different players in, in, their, in their ear. He'd been in Marbella for seven years playing golf. <laughs> he hadn't been watching football or anything. But he watched a few videos and he came to me. He said, uh, you're the man today. I said, you're the one. He said, Bill Shankly used to say to me, just go out there and drop hand grenades all over the field. No, I just go out and cause trouble wherever you go. And I'm thinking, my goodness, Keegan's my hero. And Shankly treated him like a son. And he's telling me what Shankly said to him. I burst down the tunnel. I felt 10 foot tall. I made two goals, didn't score, but made a couple of goals and we won. And, um, and I always say, you know, that's a great example of Kevin being a motivator yeah. uh, of, of men. And then a few years later, he got the England manager's job. 
and he knew what to say to certain players to make them tick. And um, it, Paul Scholes scored a hat trick in in that game. And in the paper on the Sunday, I read uh, Keegan's a great motivator of men. He said to me in the dressing room before the game, Bill Shankly used to say to me, and I thought, oh, I thought I was special, but uh, but obviously he knew, you know, Scholes was attacking midfielder. I could get to him by saying that, and someone else he'd say something different to, but he set the place alight. Yeah. I've nicked that line as well for my Saturday team when I'm talking to some of the creative players as well. So hopefully they're not listening because I want them to think <laughs> that they're special, Gavin, you know. Yeah. Um, but my, my Newcastle supporting mates say that they are forever indebted to your 16 goals that season uh, that went a long way to keeping them up. But what do you remember of that final day against Leicester? You needed a win to survive. We did. We did. And lots of people ask me, you know, and I've had promotion, I've had rele- relegation and... You know, that final day, the pressure was just huge at Filbert Street. I mean, I'd have much rather have the pressure the other way of having to, you know, win for promotion than to win or get a result to stay up. And, um, yeah, I mean, we went out. Players were being sick in the dressing room beforehand because the nerves were, were so bad. We had massive support that day. And, uh, but I, I, the, the thing we had in that team is we had me and David Kelly that could score goals. So we could win a game. That if you've got goals, you can win a game, right? Um, and we had other talented players, of course. I'm not just saying we were the only players, but I'm just saying because we could go- score goals, we could win a game. And uh, yeah, I mean, it kicked off and, and then there was a bad uh, back header and back pass and I latched onto it and, you know, I saw... Goalkeeper Muggleton coming out. I just knew I was going to score. I was in good goal scoring form, and I just delayed, waited for him to, to dive in and chipped it over him. So we won one nil up, and then second half's going on, and we're thinking, right, we, we're staying up with the win. And then uh, Walsh uh, has equalised. Big centre half captain has equalised late on. At this point, see, bear in mind you haven't got all the kind of texts going around in the same way as it is now. Uh, we didn't know whether a, a draw was enough. Is a draw enough to keep us up? So we're shouting at the bench, Gaffer, what do we do? Do we hold on for the draw? Do we need to go for the win? And they're going, we don't know. So we got like, he, it washes equalised. We've got like two or three minutes left. Tommy Wright punted the ball long. I'm just, I've got my uh, socks around my ankle at this point. So I've got cramps setting in and I'm chasing Walsh down. And I just about stretched to poke it, as, he, as he's running towards his own goal now. Um, I've stretched to poke it towards the goal, but he got there first, slid in, and he pokes it past the goalkeeper. I'm running towards the goal now, and I, as I see it go in, it's last minute now, we've, we've won the game. And I'm like, yes! And the Leicester fans have coming onto the pitch now to invade. So I, I arc my run away from the Leicester fans. I'm going now into the corner, and all the Newcastle fans start coming onto the pitch to celebrate and to confront the Leicester fans that are coming at them. And now I'm in the middle and I'm the furthest point away from the tunnel. So I had to turn and make my last run of the day. I somehow I dodged the fans and got off the field because it was a bit of a punch up on the field as well. But, oh, what a feeling we were. We survived. Otherwise, Newcastle would have gone down to the third tier for the first time in their history. And who knows what would have happened uh, if, that, if that had occurred. Just finally on Newcastle, the 92-93 promotion season. That goes down in Newcastle folklore, doesn't it? As one of the most entertaining seasons ever. Andy Cole, I've mentioned earlier, went bananas 
that season. How enjoyable was it to be a part of? And could you just feel a momentum from day one? Building, yeah. Yeah, it was a new start. Keegan brought in uh, Barry Venison, John Beresford and Paul Bracewell to give us that kind of stability. We wanted to play out from the back and Brace had good experience and in the midfield there. And from day one, we were electric. We won the first 11 games of the season, which was a club record. And it, was, it, it changed in a few months to you know, kind of like have a weight and heaviness and almost a dread of the next game to you can't wait for the next game. You felt light, you know. Uh, there was a buzz around the ground and the players up in training. So Beresford comes in, he's been at Liverpool, they've won something, you know. The, the sh- up goes the level in training. So the players ran it themselves. If you couldn't make a bad pass because the other lads were onto you and the standards raised in training so that, you know, an eight aside at Newcastle in those days was full on uh, and it was tiring, you know, mm. so you didn't need to do running sessions afterwards. So there was that. He brought Rob Lee in after a, a month, a couple of months. And of course, Rob goes on to be one of the Newcastle greats. And then Andy Cole, he gets in, transfer deadline after Christmas. I don't know when it was, now March time to give us that boost over the over the end and uh yeah uh it, i missed the last i was on the bench the last couple of games because i'd had a hamstring injury but i think i got 18 goals that year and uh it was to play i still say some football we played in that season i've looked back at the old videos it was as good as i played in in my whole career and that includes being in the premiership and playing in europe and um some of the football was would have graced any stage in in, in the world yeah and I'm sure you're probably looking forward to joining Newcastle in the Premier League, but you joined Chelsea. It was a bit of a surprise at the time, but I think I'm right in saying it wasn't necessarily a football decision. No, it, it, I mean, obviously, I love my time at Chelsea, but um, I was club captain at Newcastle, promotion. My wife was pregnant with our first child all through that promotion season. And I remember 100,000 Geordies lying in the streets. We got this open-top bus ride. and. We have that, and then two weeks later, she goes into labor. It's a very difficult labor. Uh, two days she was, she was in, and uh, our son, Jake, was born. He was born without his right hand. It was a, it was a huge shock. He's uh, born with you know, just a third of his forearm. Um, and uh, it was a huge shock at the time, so there were lots of tests that were going on as there were other things involved. And thankfully, it was just his, it's just his hand. As if you can be thankful for that, you, you can. Um, and so it was our first child and Kevin was great. And this is one of the things I say about Kevin. He shows such a different, uh, a compassionate side. He was ringing me up. He was concerned about my wife. He was concerned about Jake. And I, we'd been discussing it. And my wife and I said, you know, well, we, our family's down in London. It's our first charge. We wanted to get back to be a bit closer to the family. And he said, I want you to stay. I'm going to bring in Beardsley. I think you guys have worked well together. He said, but if your family's not happy, you, you, you won't play your best football. He said, I won't outprice you in the market. Um, and within a month, Glenn Hoddle, who tried to buy me when I was at Swindon a year before, uh, got the Chelsea job, called me up, and he said, I want to make you my first signing um, at, uh, at Chelsea. And so the timing was right. So it was, it was bittersweet because... I had this great high at Newcastle to finish. I had this great depth of relationship with the fans. And yet it was in an angst and a pain, personal pain. And also, you know, you never get to say goodbye to, mm. to the fans, and people around the club that you've 
you've loved so much. And so, um, but I left St. James, as I always say, with, you know, with my head held high and always having a special place in my heart and having done and played my part and never, all right, I wasn't going to play in the premiership at, at the highest of games with them. Um, but I've been a player that's played a good part in their history. Oh, and you're very well thought of, I can tell you that for nothing. Um, but that must have been a really tough time, a uh, really challenging time for a young parent. But I've been watching some videos of Jake's Muay Thai exploits. Where did those fighting instincts come from? He, he's genuinely sensational, technically, isn't he? He's good, yeah. I, I mean, I remember holding him in my arms, you know, there's been the shock of the birth, and I was just thinking, will he be able to do everything, you know? Mm. Um, and, and we got letters from all over the country when Jake was a baby. We got out in the press about him and, and people are, you know, with one hand are writing to us saying, oh, I do this, I do that. I've got a child one hand, he'd be all right. He, he's born that way and he'll just uh, adapt. And of course, Jake has been the type, we, we never coddled him. Um, we always loved him and, you know, loved him, disciplined him, brought him up as, as we should, but never kind of set limits on him. And and, and also with a, with a child that's got that, there's a difference there. He saw things a little bit differently to a child with two hands. So he figured out ways of doing things that you and I would just not think about. So he thought outside the box and I could, we put him into martial arts when he was about eight and we just saw as with any good athlete, a natural balance there, mm. uh, bravery and courage um, and, uh, and some talent. Mm. And, those things were cultivated over the years. So he played football and he was a decent, he was a tough centre-back defender, quite quick over the ground. But it was just, you know, maybe if he'd stayed in, if in England, he might have played, you know, some non-league football or something like that. But martial arts is his thing. Um, and he's gone on to become a professional. And um, yeah, I mean, he's doing really well at the moment. And he's at the point where they say that I think he's a couple of fights away from fighting for the North American championship. Um, and so to have one hand and to do this and he can switch, you know, from to, to Southpaw and he, he mixes up, he's good at punching, but his, his kicks are phenomenal. He's a bit of a, it's hard to work out for other fighters. And, yeah. uh, and he's, he owns his own gym in Calgary here uh, as yeah. well. So he runs that, teaches, and then he, he's got, you know, He's contracted to do, I don't know, four fights a year or what have you with Lion Fight. Yeah, brilliant. I imagine it's still tough to watch for you and his mother to see him fight, though, isn't it? <laughs> it is, because it's all right when he's winning and he's inflicting the damage, but you, you know that one day he'll be on the end of it and you'll have to see your, your boy, you know, take a, a pasting, perhaps. Um, but, I, you know, I, I've, in, I've loved watching my son, Jake, and my daughter, Ava, do whatever they've done. And I mean, my daughter's played all sports as well. And it's just, you know, it's just a great privilege to, to watch them to do well. And I think just to see their character develop through, through sport. Um, and Jake knows, because he's had the example of his dad, that it won't last forever, that he'll be an ex-fighter one day. And there's other things that are more important than life. Yeah. Well, going back to Chelsea, you always hear anecdotes about how good Glenn Hoddle was in training. How daunting yeah. was it technic when technically the manager's probably the best player? Yeah, well, and he was player manager when, when I went there. Um, I mean, I loved it because Glenn was playing sweeper and I was playing in an inside forward role, kind of in a diamond system, but 
and like getting forward from midfield. So and Dennis Wise was doing the same on the other side of midfield. And so when Glenn came out with the ball, I'd make a run and I didn't even have to look. I'd hear it coming around like this with the spin, the perfect spin to land in my path um, to play with Glenn. I, well, Kevin Keegan said to me, he called me up. He said, you'll learn more from playing with Glenn in training than anything else. He's a genius. And uh, I still say he's the best player I've played with. And that includes Zola and Hullet and Diali, all those players, just for pure football brain. He saw things people didn't see on a field and he could do things. I mean, his mind was incredible. So uh, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, daunting. I think that where some people have said as players that he's, because he saw things at another level, uh, they couldn't do what he wanted them to do. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that was the frustrating. I'm not saying I could do what Glenn did. I just benefited from playing alongside uh, Glenn. But, the, but Glenn was a visionary on the field, but he was a visionary off the field. And he took Chelsea, as you well know, to another level, from the training ground, to our diet, to the way that we played, to getting us to a cup final in the first season, and to European semi-final, taught us to play in Europe in his second season. None of us have played in Europe. Mm. Um, and, uh, and what he did for Chelsea, before he got the England job, was just simply uh, phenomenal. Um, yeah. So... Just a prick. When I count, you know, he's listing my managers. There's been a few good players in that that have been great. My managers as well. So just to have them and and, and to, to glean from them was was terrific. I think he was a brilliant England manager as well. I mean, yeah. it was such a shame for England football that he wasn't allowed to continue his uh, his job there. Terry Venables obviously started it, but for me, I thought Glenn took it to another level. Yeah, and I I was recently with Rob Lee. We were doing. About a year ago, we were doing an event in Newcastle. We travelled up from London on the train together and we were talking about Glenn. And of course, he played for Glenn at the England level. See, Gavin, he was incredible. Like, tactically, uh, he, sa he said, we'd be playing Portugal or something like that. And he'd say, look, if you move here when they come out with the ball there and we steal the ball here, it will be two passes and we'll be in. And he said it was like... It came true, you know. He could see a game and he could see tackling how he said, and same thing really, you know. That I mean, what happened with Glenn was a real, was really sad, and it was for non-footballing reasons. I know Glenn uh, was a very compassionate man, mm. you know, and he was great with me with Jake. Uh, I had to go in the early months and that up to Great Ormond Street to to get stuff done with his arm, and and Glenn was very, very compassionate. Uh, mm. to that so to sort of say what he allegedly said was was really quite sad and a great mind that should have been in an England job a lot longer yeah no I totally agree I remember you know there was a bandwagon wasn't there Tony Blair got involved and anyway you yeah. know it, it all ended very very sourly but that season I think Eric Cantona described Chelsea as Mozart with a group of heavy rockers obviously describing Glenn as Mozart so Mozart a little bit disrespectful to, to the heavy rockers, but you scored the winning goal twice against Manchester United that season. So it's no bad yeah. thing to be Lemmy or Ozzy Osbourne now and again. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember Cantona saying that. And in the game at Stamford Bridge, he hit the crossbar. I mean, Cantona was... People say, "What? who's your best player you know, you played against in the 90s? And I said, for me, in the Premiership, Cantona had... He had the... You know, I love... Glenn was my best player, but against... It'll be Cantona. Um, and I, it was early on in the season. I've scored the winner. We've won 1-0. 
Manchester United battered us a bit. We held out. We went up there in February, I think it was, and Glenn said, look, we might get just one chance here. Just make sure we, you know, we make it count. We'll be tight as we can. So we rode our fortune a little bit because if you look at the highlights of that game, it's a lot of Man United battering us. But I managed to nick a goal um, in the second half and to do the double over. I, don't pro I probably didn't really appreciate it as for what it was at the time. Two one nils. I've scored the winner in each and we've done the double over Man U. Um, that doesn't happen often, but it was a great first season for me. I, every goal, all the goals I was scoring seemed to be winning goals and yeah. in the league and in the, I scored in every round of the FA Cup. And of course, we got to the final of the FA Cup and who was it against? Man United. Well, yeah. The memories come back from that season. I know it's 26 years ago, but when I just did my research and it said, yeah, Gavin scored the winning goal in both those games. It's like, oh yeah, he did. It was, and it, it all just comes flowing back. But the FA Cup final, I mean... You'd scored in every round, I think, and it was nil-nil yeah. when you hit the bar with that volley. Do you replay that over and over in your mind a lot? Well, not a lot, but does it, does it come to you from time to time? Because the FA Cup back then, even though we were in the Premier League era, yeah. still had a lot more kudos than it is now. Mm. And, you know, we grew up, didn't we, watching it on the telly and schoolboy dream to play in the FA Cup final. And uh, Yeah, I mean, I just thought when I... I mean, I, I relive it because people talk about it and they ask me about it. And some people say, what about the chance you missed in the FA Cup? I said, the chance? It was a 25-yard volley. <laughs> it wasn't actually an open goal. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I just remember it. Ince, Paul Ince jumps up for it. Paul and I played against each other from being kids. Um, you know, and he, we were against each other in midfield that day. He jumped up and then I just... It was one of those where, I, as it came down, I... You know, I just flicked it from left to right foot, uh, from right to left foot, and it was on the left. I didn't care. I'm a right-footed player, but I could kick with both, and it flew. And I just didn't feel it come off my foot. And then it's like everything goes into slow motion. I'm watching Schmeichel, and he's going back at this point. I'm thinking, it's going in. It's going to be one nil again. Peacock scores. You know, we'll have one hand on the cup. Manchester United just think it's not their year. And, as he's backpedaled and stretched, I can just see it, and then it hit the bar and out, fast forward, and you know, uh, everything. We're going at nil nil at half time, but obviously the second half was a different yeah. story with penalties against us. Biggest disappointment of your career, and, and what's it like for a losing team for the rest of the evening? Because don't you have kind of dinners booked that you have to attend? Or? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a great, you know, I always say Wembley's a a place for, for winners. Um, so it was a huge disappointment. Uh, we went back to the Savoy Hotel. It, as you say, it's all booked. There's a big evening and dinner booked and and you got to get going and your family's there and there's a few fans and you put on a brave face, but deep down there's that kind of, there's that pain. Um, but, you know, as the next few days go on, you you know, we looked back and we thought, look how far we've come in the, in the season with Chelsea now as FA Cup final for the first time in 24 years. And we looked ahead to what, you know, we were in the European Cup, Cup Winners' Cup mm. for the following season. So it, it was, yeah, close, but, but not enough. And uh, I just think, you know, one inch lower, <laughs> and we have, would I have a, a winner's medal? And, uh, and yet... Three years later, Roberto Di Matteo burst through against Middlesbrough in the FA Cup final for Chelsea, hits the same crossbar, one inch lower, almost exactly the same place as I did, goes in 
and sets them on the way to winning the FA Cup. Well, I was going to say divine intervention, but we might get onto that. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you had another good season the following year, the great run in the Cup Winners' Cup, but then Ruth Hulley yep. was promoted to manager and it seemed to spell the end for you. Did he, did he explain to you why you were suddenly being completely marginalised? No, when Ruth came in the season after that as a player, after the European season, and great, I mean, to play with Ruth was phenomenal. He made us better and Mark Hughes came. And I liked playing with Rudy, uh, and he was funny, and of course he's a legend. And uh, he, I think I counted of my last seven goals for Chelsea, he, he made five of them, you know, with his assists. Always did the right thing on the field. Then Glenn got the England job, Rude took over, and then I just found that coming in, coming in pre-season, you can sense it as a player, you know, just mm. he's not quite, you know, including me in the practice matches and then you'd come in on a pre-season match day and you'd look at the board and suddenly your name's not on the team where it was on the team now it's on the bench then the next game it's not even on the bench and nothing's being said Mm. um and so communication wise it it wasn't good and i had been uh, captain you know it was wise he was captain and then i was i was vice captain and i played i don't know how many games for chelsea in three years uh, you know, average 40-odd games a season. And, uh, all right, Di Matteo comes in. Um, uh, I know Zola's coming in. I know now that it could be a bit of a squad game here and I might not play as many games. Hmm. But I was coming out of contract at the end of that season and I just called a meeting with Rude. And as, we, as well, remember, we'd been teammates. Hmm. And um, I just said, look, Rude, I'm out of contract at the end of the season. Obviously, I could go on a free then. Um, it doesn't look like I'm in your plans. You know, you're not including me or anything like that. I'm 100% for Chelsea and I'm willing to fight for the place, but it would be better if, I, if you're straight with me and you got me a move rather than just let me waste. And uh, he seemed all right. And then I just, I found myself training with the reserves. I found myself training sometimes with the youth team. Uh, and this is from being captain, uh, myself, and he did this with Rowcastle, David Rowcastle, a lovelier man you failed to meet than Rocky. Um, but he was just ousted. Um, and uh, he started a bit, bit with John Spencer. And I think Wisey went round to have a chat with him to say, look, Rue, you've got to be a bit more um, communicative with the players here and tell them what you're doing, a bit better man management. Anyway, all that to say is, uh, QPR came knocking. They paid almost a million for me and they bought John Spencer for two million. They'd just come out of the premiership, so they had money. Trevor Sinclair was there, Andy Impey, Alan McDonald, uh, some, a good group of players. And it was my old team, the team that I started with. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll go. I was going to say, was it a bit of a romantic decision? I think you were 29. Could you have stayed in the Premier League? Yeah, oh, he could have stayed in the Premier League. Who, who knows? If I'd. You know, if I'd hung on uh, and not taken the QPR move, um, maybe a West Ham or someone would have come in and I could have seen maybe myself staying at a West Ham for a few years. Um, but it was QPR, and as I say, the heartstrings were there. And, um, and I thought, you know, we had a chance. And of course, when Spencer and I went there, we did change it a bit. And we, we were close to getting in the playoffs of the first season and then things began to change. Spencer moved to Everton, Sinclair moved and it became a, a battle. 
uh, Jerry Francis came in and gave us a little bit of a hope. And I thought maybe we'll do something under Jerry, um, financial type of problems off the field. And it didn't happen. Yeah. During your career, were you mature enough to think about what you could potentially do after football? Or was it mm. something that kind of gradually came upon you a little bit quickly? Um, I remember when I was, you know, 20 years old, 21 years old, and I just got the Bournemouth move, big move for me, you know, club record. And I remember they had a player, Sean Brooks, good midfield player, very skillful. And Brooksy and I would hang out a bit at lunch after training and we loved the Italian football. We'd talk football all the time and he took me under his wing a bit. And, and, um, and one, I said, how old are you, Brooks? He said, 27. And I thought, 27? And that's old. <laughs> I mean, when, if I make it to 27 in the game, I can retire then. If anything's a bonus after that, you know. Um, so I wasn't really thinking about life after football in those early years. But as you go on, you know, you start to think, I was sensible. I put money into my football pension and I didn't sort of live uh, extravagantly or anything like that. So I was sort of saving a bit for the future. But I didn't know what I was going to do. My managers kept saying to me, I remember Jerry Francis pulling me, he said, you should do your coaching badges. You know, you've, been captain, you've been captain of all your teams. He said, I think you'd do well. And quite frankly, if Jerry had stayed at QPR and I had retired and maybe they'd offer me some you know into the coaching position under Jerry's tutelage because I respected Jerry so much mm. I think I would have gone for it but Jerry left and then the media stuff was coming in and I'd been pretty media friendly as a player always mm. did interviews gotten well with the press you know they've got they've got a job to do as well as what I always thought um and uh some could be a bit you know I've had my fair share of uh, you know bad reports on me that I thought were maybe a bit unjust, but overall got on very well with the, the press and liked it, liked the media, liked the, you know, it was getting big now with the Premiership, Sky TV. I'd done a few goals on Sunday and stuff like that. And then I, start, I thought, as my career was coming to an end, I thought, well, I'm going to give, rather than going for the coaching, I'm going to give the media a go. I was getting some opportunities. And I started a career again. I was at Capital Radio. Mm. I was 150 pound for a, you know, a match day, driving to Middlesbrough from London and back again, getting back at 10 at night, but learning my trade uh, at Capital Radio, Radio 5 Live, and then I get a break on the TV with BBC and it, it really took off for me. Absolutely, it came. It, it just went from there, just snowballed from there. W were you tempted, even though you had all these media opportunities, were you tempted to carry on playing for as long as you could? Were you tempted to go down the leagues? Yeah, I had a, a little bit of a swan song in the Premier League with Charlton on loan in my final oh, season. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I was a QPR and there was a, they'd gone into administration so, and I was their best play, paid player. Ian Holloway had taken over. And I knew he was struggling. they were struggling with my wages a bit and, and Holly probably needed me to, to, to leave the club because he didn't know that, well, for my wages, he could have probably got in two or three other players, you know, younger players. And, and I, but I came back in my final season really fit pre-season. I scored against Chelsea in a, uh, a pre-season friendly. And Alan Kirby, had Mark Kinsella got injured at Charlton. My dad was the assistant manager there. Kerbs I knew from old anyway. And he said, come on loan for three months. Get you off QPR's wage bill. And if you do well, he said, you know, we'll take over your contract. And I thought, 
going to have a couple of years in the Premiership. I won't play every game, but squad player for Charlton. It's my dad's team. I watched them growing up as a kid. What a great way to end things. And I did well. I play. I was. Uh, I got on. I, play, I was on the bench against Everton first game at Valley. Got on at half time. Played well. Played a full game against Ipswich. And a couple of games later, I uh, ripped my calf muscle in training, and it was a battle then to get fit. Mm. Uh, for the rest of my lung period. Curbs couldn't, at 35 almost, he couldn't take me on. Uh, and at the end of that season, I had a bit of a knee issue. And I just decided, yeah, I could have played on. Mm. I could have played on. I, I think if I played on, I'd have had to be at a team that was doing really well, though. Because yeah. battling away when you're 35 in a, a team that's you know having a struggle is um, is difficult. But... I made my decision to finish at a time when I felt I was still able to play well and perform well. Yeah. And in my last season, I'd had a, a little couple of appearances in the Premier League. And so I, uh, I finished just before I was 35, having come into the game when I was 16. Leave them wanting more, that's the way. Um, <laughs> but what, what about the punditry? Did it come naturally or did you find that the hard yards you'd put in briefly at Capital really stood you in yeah. good stead? Yeah, I learned a lot of Capital. Uh, I'll be great. I'm grateful to Capital Radio, and I learned from Tony Gale, who was their mm. main pundit. Just listen to the way that he phrased things and his timing of his comments and descriptive words that he used of players. And and so I start and I studied the teams and the players. I knew that I wasn't the greatest player to, you know, I couldn't come out onto the TV or radio with a big list of honours and achievements. I had to be really good and give insight to the fans. Mm. And, uh, and I found myself enjoying the craft. I'd speak to the different, you know, press boys. And, and because I think I got on well with them, they were helpful to me. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's always, I think, good to remember that. And like, you know, you could be a, you, you, you can be a, you know, up and at the top at echelons or something. And, you know, you could, a few people in the press or whatever, you can maybe not treat them. So and suddenly, actually, you're now in their world and you yep. need them to help you. And, and so I think that reciprocated well. And, um, and then I, I think I did, I did well. I got on to the Africa Cup of Nations on the BBC. Andy Cole was on there with me and uh, Garth Crooks. And then they put me on Football Focus and, and then Final Score. Um, and then I, I, you know, I used to do anything at the last minute. You know, if I got a call from BBC, could you come in tonight and do this? I would do it because I, I had to, I wasn't going to get a contract like Alan Shearer. Um, and then I got match of the day two and a slot with Adrian Childs and, and Lee Dixon, who I got on very well with on the screen. And that became a bit of a thing for us. And, mm. and then I got taken in their squads to World Cup in Germany and the Euros in Portugal and uh, Switzerland. So I loved it. I loved the creative side of it. And I remember early on doing a few things that hadn't been done before. So I... I remember, so all the graphics and that are even different now, but I remember being on a sun, uh, it was a Sunday night, I think it was, and it was a match day two, and I thought, you know, we're going to talk about the referees here, and we'd always hammer the refs. I want to look at it from the referees' angle to show that it wasn't so clear-cut as we might have thought, something like that, you know? Mm. Um, and I remember uh, John Motson ringing me up and saying, oh, that was really good, good insight. So 
I love to do that creative side to present because that's what you're trying to do for people at home, whether they're listening on the radio or watching on TV, give them insight because the fans are educated now more than ever. They know the boy did good. He stuck it in the net. They don't need you to say that. You know, they can, they keep, they've got tactical awareness. They want real insight and that's mm. what Umbit should be able to give. And um, so I like that. And then Mark Lawrenson was helpful. I, I, look, I looked at the way that Mark could have a line on every team in the, in the league, you know, uh, and we work with earpieces. So you have to be able to work when they're counting down in your ear and you've got 10 seconds to make a comment. So I learned to do that. And if you can learn to work with an earpiece, your editors, you're worth gold to them because you can, you can help control the show for them on, on screen um, and make timely comments. So all those things. BBC team was great. The men and women behind the scenes were ph phenomenal. And then we had people like Jackie Oakley coming through who goes on to be the first woman to commentate on match of the day. And um, Rebecca Lowe, I, oh, I mean, yeah. Rebecca Lowe, she's now the face of premiership football in the States. I mean, the, the woman's on like over a million dollars a year. She was a pitch side reporter that used to report into, uh, into the final score when I was there. So great, talented bunch. And absolutely loved my time at the BBC. Yeah. No, I worked with Rebecca for ESPN. She was fantastic, and I'm so pleased for her, the way well, that her yeah. career's taken off like that. I was going to ask you as well, how far do you think punditry has come in recent years with what Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher are able to do in terms of analysis? And would you have liked that extra time to look at the game in such minute and intense detail? I think so, yes. I, 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 I just was trying to sort of say a little bit there. I enjoyed that side of things and trying to think like a manager, um, and uh and do those sort of tactical or creative pieces so yeah i mean as i say neville and, and carragher they do that really really well less than one percent of retired footballers crack it in terms of getting punditry punditry work particularly high profile punditry work mm. that you were getting now i think at the time you were also studying theology at cambridge yeah. um so what made you then decide fundamentally to go down that route and then, of course, decide to do a master's? And not mm. only that, to completely leave the world of punditry behind and to mm. up sticks with your family and go to Canada. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'd been a Christian since I was 18. So uh, right at the beginning of my football career, really, um, you know, I hadn't, wasn't brought up in a, a Christian home, um, but... One night, my mom decided to just walk along to the local church in Barnhurst where we were living. And um, I said, I'll keep you company and got invited back to the youth group afterwards. I was only 18 at the time. And, you know, I turned out with everything the world would say would make you happy. I had a great career, a bit of money in my pocket for a young lad. I had an XR3i, it was a nice little 80s sports car. Um, and yet I'd been thinking through, you know, well, if I play well, I'm up. If I play badly, I'm down. And, you know, football doesn't last forever. And, you know, is it all it's cracked up to be, you know? Mm. Um, and when I sort of met these other young people my own age, there was a joy and a reality they had when they spoke about Jesus Christ and who he was and what he did and Christianity. Um, and I didn't have that. And so my biggest need wasn't the approval of the crowd on a Saturday, but it was being in a right relationship with God. And mm. he provided that through his son, Jesus Christ. And I became a Christian. Um, I believed and I became a Christian. And um, I, uh, I'd never thought that through, through my football career that I was going to go into the ministry or anything like that. <laughs> I 
spoke at youth things and people were interested in me being Christian and athlete and um, and yet this then I began to get this growing sense I suppose and of I really think maybe you know I I might be called to to actually do some teaching in the church and mm. so I, I began to test that out or the leadership in my church gave me opportunities to test it out when I was still doing the media stuff mm. and that's when I started doing studies at Cambridge but as soon as I started to study as soon as I started doing preaching I actually said to my wife I think I'm going to give it up I said I think I'm crazy because I'm giving up the second dream career but I think I'm going to give it up to just take a bit more time to prepare for church ministry mm. and uh and I think she thought I was crazy too um not that she thought it was a bad thing to do my wife's Christian too but I said, what about going to Canada and, and doing the studies, getting away from it all where they don't know me? I go to anonymity. We'd been coming to Canada a lot. Right. So we knew the area. That's why we chose Canada. We knew it quite well. And, you know, complete change of character tests as well. And I do a three-year master's there and we'll, we'll come back possibly after three years. Well, I did that. We left and, you know, and that's 12 years later and I'm an associate pastor or assistant pastor at, a church here in Calgary and I travel all over the world now and speak where I'm invited to to speak and teach and preach and do my life story as well that people want to hear that um, mm. I've been to India to, to uh, China and uh, all over the states and um, to Africa and I come back regularly to England and yeah I mean I'm doing something it's you know we it cost us a lot in terms of you know we left our family uh, cost us financially I mean I you know you we just, uh, I gave up all that I was going to get media wise and uh, just take a small salary from the church. And, but it's been highly fulfilling and probably the hardest 12 years of our lives, but, but the best and the deepest in terms of, you know, our relationship with God is strong. And, mm. and I'm working with people in, uh, you know, one of the great things about football is it's you're involved with people, you know, it's, a football club isn't, ultimately about the players it's about the fans and the city and the love and the passion and the glory and the hope and of course you're dealing with people in church ministry and in their darkest hours and their highest moments in birth of children and marriage and all of that so it's still working with people but ultimately I don't live for things uh, that are temporal but things that are eternal so giving people hope and of course in times like this well difficult times people are looking around and they're going well I can't rely on my money because look at the stock market I can't rely on health because people are dying you know and we will all die at some point I can't even rely on people ultimately because I can't see them we're all isolated uh, what can you have hope in uh, mm. that will last and the bible tells us that you can have hope in God and a lot of mental health stuff issues going around there's a knock-on from this and and the Bible, again, gives us hope in God, even in difficult times. And so, uh, you know, I found I've had deep conversations with people who aren't Christians, uh, who are really interested in what does the Bible have to say about me and God and how we relate. So, No, that is interesting. I mean, cards on the table, I, I, I'm not religious at all, but yeah, I, I lived in Singapore from 2011 to 2018. So I was presenting Premier League football out there. So that was my dream job mm. but then I came back to the UK and what I'd missed was seven years of austerity now I live in Hove which is as middle class and 
affluent as you can get in the UK. But all of a sudden I'm seeing charities who are having to give kids hot meals in the summers. I'm seeing yeah. food banks even in Brighton and Hove. Now, even though I've, I've been brought up secular, you know, non-believer, if you like, the respect I got for the church then was profound because so many of these charitable initiatives are coming from the church. And I just never realised that before. And the church is so active in communities. Um, maybe, maybe the Christian faith needs to be marketed a little bit, a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and churches should be active in communities and care about all suffering. You know, it's, uh, it's, um, you know, people are all, all people are created in the image of God, which means everyone has worth uh, because they're created by God. And, and so we should have a care for one another and the church should lead the way in those things. And what the church also leads the way in is offering people eternal hope. So we should care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. Where are you going to be when you die? What, what's your greatest need? Mm. Is, is no God who created you. Um, we're all sinners. We've all done wrong before him. We need forgiveness. He's provided it in Jesus and he's provided a way back to have a right relationship with him. Mm. And so all of a sudden the world makes sense. You know why you're here. You know what your identity is. Lots of identity problems now. There's people struggling for purpose and identity. Well, I know why I'm here. I know what I'm created for. That is to honor God. And um, I know how I can be in a right relationship with him and therefore with other people too. And as a spillover of that is then this care for other people, like you say, you know, in times like this. And there's something true about that that rings true. Even if you're not Christian, you go, that's good. Or, yeah. or you know, or we see... We see a marriage that's lasted for 20 years and go, oh, that's good. Why is that good? Well, there's faithfulness, there's perseverance, there's, you know, all of these things that we admire, it rings true. And, and even in football, I think, you know, there's that desire in us to praise something that is bigger than us, that is beautiful, that is great, and we were made to praise God. But when we come to this football stadium, it's to praise the players because it's good. It takes us out of our ordinary and up there. And we, there's a desire to do that together. So we want to do it in community. So we're mm. fans together. We feel like we belong together and we want to have the hope of glory. And of course, on the football field, it's mm. that hope of glory of your team. And so there's echoes in, in that, in sport and football. It's just ultimate. And, it's, and that's good and great. But I say, my little strap line to people is, you know, football is great, but it is not God, you know, mm. ultimately. And those things point us to God. So I've got my biography coming out next year. Um, and I just talk about my career and that, and I weave in my story along the way. And, mm. and then, you know, it's called A Greater Glory. That's what I'm calling the, the book, you know, that this is this great sport that we have. And I've led this great life that I've had. And yet there's something greater even than that. that yeah. That, for everyone so how are you uh, how are you approaching the book are you doing it like i've approached it in kind of chronological order but leaving your new life and your christian faith to the end or are you weaving that through the kind of tapestry of the story of your life yeah that's a great question i thought about how i do it i mean i start with the fa cup final in 94, just like, boom, we're in there. I want to give people insight. I'm writing it in the present tense. I want to give people insight into what it's like. Mm. And then I go back to the beginning and start writing the third person and, uh, you know, wh where I uh, started. 
and then I'll, I'll flow through in chronological order, but I, I'll weave things in along the way of, of small things that, mm. you know, it's not heavy um, to, to when it comes to a crescendo at the end where I have a little bit more of a, a, a clear presentation of the gospel, what we call the gospel. Mm. But what it is, is um, it speaks to lots of human interests. I mean, I speak about fatherlessness in the book. Mm. I speak about racism in the book. I speak about mental health issues in the book, about marriage and the family, about, you know, all of these issues that hit all of us about disability. Uh, all, everyone that reads the book will be able to key in on certain issues because it affects us all. And I'll just touch and just say that this is how the Bible might speak about this. So, because the Bible isn't just something, God's just not just over there. He, mm. This world's created by him, so it fits together according to his word. So it speaks organically to these things. And so my I hope is just presenting it in an accessible way so mm. people aren't feeling like they're getting bashed. But and it is my story and it's funny. Like I've got some I've got some good stories in there, all of the Chelsea Newcastle days, and all the time touching on some deep issues, cultural issues in life, and then bringing it to bear in, you know, what does what does the Bible say right at the end? So hopefully it'll be it's different. Uh, I've had a few good endorsements back. I've had people, I've had a few Christian people endorse it but i've had lots of non-christian people uh really give good endorsements for it and robbie fowler was the first one that read it and gave me a good endorsement so thank, thankful for them to my mate robbie for a, a good endorsement he loved it oh good stuff now i work with robbie briefly in singapore he's uh yeah he's a really really top guy i had to ask you as well obviously i come from a presenting background and when i work with pundits they mm. maybe seem to think that they could easily transition into presenting, but it's totally different. And how did you find that transition from being a pundit to all of a sudden being a pastor in front of a live audience? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I did a little bit of presenting because I think they were giving me some, gr you know, grooming me a little bit at BBC to do maybe a few radio things and that. Mm. So, you know, a couple of Friday night things, they give me the script and, it was not easy. Uh, I even did songs of praise. I presented songs of yeah. praise three times. Yeah. Uh, again, not easy. I was trying to get my lines right and uh, knew it was a different ball game. Um, but, but then obviously, yeah, I mean, it, I, I just say that, I mean, I was in front of millions of people on the TV mm. uh, and I can be in front of 100 people or 200 people on a Sunday and I feel the weight of it even more than the millions in, on the TV because I'm it's there's eternal things at stake there's people's lives at stake yep. uh, their well-being in a you know not that football's not important but you know I'm speaking to these deep issues of life so I feel the weight of that and to get it right and that's why I took the time to study mm. uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the greatest preacher but I wanted to have certain tools that so I could understand the Bible and I could teach it correctly as best I could because People are trusting what you say. Mm. And um, so I feel the weight of that responsibility before God and before people on a Sunday. So it's more nerve wracking than playing at Wembley at times or being on match of the day when I'm in front of those on a Sunday. But now obviously I do it a lot. I'm, I'm not kind of quaking in my boots every Sunday. I, uh, I, but I do enjoy it. Yeah. Still. I, I did read a quote from you not long ago saying that you maybe wouldn't have been able to have a career in professional football now because of 
your beliefs. Do you think religion does polarise people that much or do you, would you not have been able to adapt? Well, I think in terms of Christian ethics now, mm. uh, to, to speak publicly on Christian ethics, uh, unless you're given a, you know, like have a long chat, like a, an interview like that, people can pick up sound bites and what you might say on Christian ethics on marriage and sexuality. And I speak on these things quite a lot. Mm. Um, uh, and you can just get hammered mm. and you can be accused of being, you know, unloving, a bigot, intolerant, all of these things. And yet ultimately, you know, the UK built on a Christian worldview, um, things have things have changed in terms of the law but not in terms of the bible mm. and, and now we're getting pressed more and more in a culture that's actually crushing freedom of speech and freedom of religion mm. and so i think what i was probably saying and i know the, the context that that was in is that yeah if i was to to say what i say on from the pulpit or even on some social media as a footballer now i would it would be very hard for me to to hold my position because uh, people will be coming at me and saying, you know, this is not politically correct. Um, yeah. And I'd say, but it's biblically true. <laughs> Might not be politically correct, but it's biblically true. And if it's biblically true, it's actually loving yeah. um, for people. Um, and, uh, and of course, don't forget, you know, I'm, I'm pastoring people, I'm dealing with people that are experiencing all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues. All the issues that we see in the culture around are being experienced by people that I'm dealing with. So I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm very concerned for the, for the welfare of people. Mm. And, uh, and I ought to be, if I'm a, uh, I'm a pastor, and we ought to be as, as Christians. And as you say, uh, the Christian church should be leading the way on these issues of compassion. But sometimes compassion and love, uh, it, put it this way, uh, love and truth mm. are not being they go together yeah they go together and i think it just seems to be these one or two set in stone issues because i've always said even though we disagree in terms of religious beliefs you know i've always said i think it's to quote voltaire that i disapprove of what you say not you personally but i will defend to the death your right to say it however there have been instances where public figures yeah. have spoken out about certain things and it's whether there's a murky area between free speech, the right to religious views, and that kind of out-and-out -out hate speech. And I think that's just the grey area, isn't it? Which is, yeah, I don't know where we're kind of going with that or where the church is going with that. Mm. Well, the thing is, the church must maintain its stand on the Bible. And then, you know, you mentioned hate speech. Who defines hate speech? Mm. Who, who, who defines it? You know, um, and uh, the Bible hasn't changed for all of these hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. Um, so therefore, quite rightly, as you say, and, and I just think of that there, you know, we ought to be able to have proper debates mm. without a shouting match, like we saw in the presidential, <laughs> first presidential one with, with Trump and Biden. But, you know, you have firmly, you know, holding to whatever your beliefs are, mm. me holding to mine. And, and then a robust, without, without destroying the person, yep. because as I say, we're all creating the image of God, so we, we can have a mutual respect. Honoring the person is a person, but I don't believe, 
believe what you're saying because of this. You don't believe what mm. I'm saying because of this. I'll appeal to the Bible. Let's point to the Bible. You might say, well, the Bible says it. And now we've got an actual civilized dis discussion or debate going on. Mm. And, and that's, I guess, but, but I think what's happening is people are getting shut down very quickly uh, yeah. if they say something that's not PC. Um, and just getting automatically uh, categorized over there, or you're over there, without actually hearing that person mm. and hearing what their beliefs or their ethics are based on. Yeah. Um, and then I think if you do that, you might come away not still not agreeing, but yeah. at least there's a respectful. Uh, otherwise, what you've got is you shut down freedom of speech, you shut down freedom of religion, and you shut down freedom of thought. And start starting to freedom of thought. I can't even think this way now mm. because it's deemed as hate thought. You're getting back to a dystopian novels like 1984 yeah. um, and, uh, or, or Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. You know, you read those guys that wrote a century ago and it's, it's quite cool. Yeah. That's the way to go. So anyway, that's, yeah, that's the way it is now. It's, a, it's difficult days but uh, at the same time I think people want to hear and they want to hear biblical truth and they want to hear because I like the Bible speaks to all of life and family and it works together and they, mm. I think non-Christians I spoke to go yeah that makes sense to me yeah even though I'm not Christian but that makes sense to me what you're saying I've had people write yeah. to me yeah um, having no real knowledge of religion least of all the, the kind of Christian faith I suppose people like me find it slightly confusing that there seems to be progression with regard to certain issues. All of a sudden you see gay bishops, female priests, etc. But then there seems to be another strand where everything is set in stone from that biblical time with no kind of room for manoeuvre. I suppose I thought it was all part of the same thing, but yet there seems to be different views. Yeah, yeah. And there's always been liberal, uh, a liberal wing that would always move away from what is the conservative uh, truth of the scriptures mm, so right. sort of being we conserving what is true eternally true uh, mm. and that transcends culture and then there's other things that do change over time mm. um, and so there's part of the church that would say on issues of sexuality oh we we've progressed now mm. and the, the, then the conservative part of the church will say, no, these are creation order issues from the mm. first page of scripture. Before any sin or brokenness entered the world, this is what God created and made. And therefore these things, and, and, and marriage is one of those things, mm. uh, these things transcend cultures and are true for every age. And we can point to, you know, every culture that, that's then built on marriage and children, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, you wouldn't propagate without that. Um, and so, You've always had the liberal sort of wing as such. Um, and, and that's been reared its head in different issues in different times over the years. Hmm. You know, in our age, I, I think one of the key is, is the, in the issues of sexuality, hmm. uh, particularly. Um, what it is to be human, even, hmm. is being questioned now. You know, hmm. first pages of scripture, we're made male and female in the image of God. Mm. binary sexes that are fixed by God in creation as you're made. Now it's, is it, what is it to be a human? What is it to be a man or a female? Is there a third sex? Uh, mm. Can you change gender? Is gender something you think 
mm. or something you are. So, so that now we're, we're in an age now where um, it's very much about me and my self-expression. And, if, the, and if, I, if I say anything against your self-expression, I'm oppressing you. Mm. Rather than uh, it's about objective truth outside of myself that is true, whatever I feel or not, because my feelings change mm. and my thoughts can change. But if there's a truth outside of me that's, that's true, that, that depart, that's a different standpoint. And now, therefore, if I decide what is ultimate truth, I create my own world. You create your own world. And mm. your, you hear people say, your truth is good for you. My truth is good for me. Just don't tell me my truth's wrong else you're repressing me. Yeah. And what we're talking about is in debates, having maybe is a slightly different thing. It's like, you can firmly believe in something. I could have a, a robust discussion with a Muslim friend who, and I'll say, I believe in objective truth, it's the Bible. He'll say, I believe in objective truth, it's the Quran. Mm. And then we can, but we can have a discussion and we can put together our worldviews and see, well, does your worldview hold or does my worldview hold? Um, yeah. And we can still have a respectful uh, discussion. I might not convince him. Mm. And, I can be, and, and, and I think there needs to be the, I think there needs to be, uh, for us to be properly human, and, and you talk about progression, is to have that. No, I think you're wrong. I mm. think you're really wrong. I love you, but I think you're really wrong. Um, and, uh, and to hold to that and give my reasons why and hear the other side. I think that's another thing, you know, so that you really hear what the other person's saying before you dive in to bring down their argument. I think yeah. that's an important thing. Is, so have I got this right, Richard? You're saying this and you mean this by what you say, not just me assuming it because I've, I've put you into a box already in my mind because you're not a Christian, you know? Mm. Um, so it is complicated, but um, I'm, up, I'm up for a, and I think there, needs, there is a good um, need for proper discussion yeah. on these issues. But, and I don't really do, and we've just touched on it, but I don't really do sort of like newspaper interviews or anything mm. like that on those things. Because a soundbite here, a soundbite there, mm. it's, it's, it's no good. You yeah. sit down and have a live, a live discussion is, is different. So. Yeah, respectful discussion. I think that's the way forward. Just finally then, Gavin, do you think you will ever may have a reverse road to Damascus moment, if you like? I'm thinking about Jonathan Edwards suddenly having this uh, epiphany and, and deciding to become very secular in his thinking, which obviously happened over a period of time, but yeah. you don't see that happening anytime soon. No, and I pray and I hope not. Um, and I knew Jonathan. He lived mm. up in the northeast together for a while, and uh, when I was around his house, we had dinner. And wives knew each other a little bit, so I was very sad to hear that mm. what happened with Jonathan. But no, I mean, you know, it has happened. But you know, by God's grace, I'm pressing on, and uh, you know, I, I think I, for the foreseeable future, I'll be in this vocation. Mm. Will I always be a pastor for the rest of my life? Don't know. Maybe not. I mean, I think I'll always be a Christian, um, but uh, maybe there's something else that I'll do. I mean, I've done, moved now into, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm an author, I've written a few books now uh, with this, uh, this biography being the latest coming out, um, mm. and I've, I've enjoyed writing, um, and, uh, and who knows, you know, I love to, to go speak. Um, I mean, I was in Africa last year, 18 months ago, mm. you know, and I'm playing football, with kids in 
some of these villages, they got nothing, you know? Yeah. And, then I, and they'll listen to me after, because they don't know, they don't remember who I am. They've just been told by their teacher or their dad, and he's a former player for Chelsea. And, uh, but he's a Christian, and they'll, they love to hear about who Jesus is in Africa. And they'll listen to me and I, I, you know, tell them, you know, give them the hope of what God gives them in Jesus, just telling them. And, the, you know, it's just a great thrill to be able to do that. And then they'll come up and ask for your boots because <laughs> they've got enough boots and they're playing in bare feet. And, and then one said, could you bring Ronaldo with you next time? <laughs> I don't have his phone number. But, did did um, you just say which one? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, stuff like that is just the doors have opened up and I've come to anonymity here in Calgary uh, and I've doors have opened up for this for global stuff that I'm doing He's, you know people in England won't sort of see a lot of the stuff but and it's not super high profile in terms of um, f- football stuff but it, it, in terms of, sort of global reach and that it's um, it's been really good well Gavin it's been absolutely fascinating I look forward to reading your book as well if it's good enough for Robbie Fowler it's certainly good enough for me <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. That's probably the deepest and lengthiest conversation about religion I've ever had. I'm not going to say I'm converted by any means, but I found it really interesting nonetheless. And again, it demonstrates how you can have a polite conversation despite having diametrically opposing views about what can be a really polarizing subject and please do yourselves a favor and check out the fighting exploits of Gavin's son Jake it really is truly inspirational stuff apologies by the way for the occasional sound interference when I was speaking absolutely no idea what caused that but I shall do my utmost to get it resolved before next week's episode if you've got any comments then get in touch via twitter at richard lenton loads more great guests coming up from the famous to the not so famous names who've embarked upon really interesting post-playing careers so keep your eye out every week for new episodes or better still just subscribe and give the pod a five-star review while you're at it all the very best The Phoenix Sport and Media Group provide honest and trustworthy professional advice and business solutions to the sports and media industry. For more information, visit www.psm-group.co.uk.